Wow. Mark 6, verse 47. When the evening came, the boat, that was the boat that the disciples were in, that Jesus sent them across the Sea of Galilee to the other side while he remained uh, praying on the shore and asking God for help, the Father, and as he did often. And when the boat was in the middle of the sea, he was alone on the land. Jesus is back there praying. They're in the middle of the sea. When he saw them straining at rowing, wow, for the wind was against them. Now watch. You look at this. Remember this point. It's nighttime. It's a great distance from the shore to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, even in the brightest of sunshine. And Jesus at night is able to see them, not just see a boat, but see that they were struggling, that they had a problem, that things were not going well because they were in a storm. And seeing through the night, see, our military thinks it's cool because they have night vision. God does this all the time. This is nothing for him. And he sees them in the middle of the night toiling, struggling, and now fearful that they may drown and die. Remember this. When you're in a storm of any kind, he sees you. He knows where you are. He knows what the problems are. He understands that you are struggling, and the wind was, is against you, the same kind of environment. And about the fourth watch of the night, when it's pitch black, when it's before the dawn, and everything is, uh, you can't see a finger in front of you, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. So he knows where you are, and he knows how to get to you. Now watch, kind of a phenomenal moment, and he would have passed them by. Now that gets my attention. Why would Jesus pass them by? Just because you're in a storm and you have a need doesn't mean Jesus is just going to not only show up, but he's actually going to help you. He's not going to automatically do that. He'll show up. He sees where you are. He's always present. But look, he would have passed them by, the scripture says. And what does that mean? If they had not done something to get his attention, because this is the Son of God, this is God in the flesh, this is the seawalker, and he would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a spirit and cried out. Thank God they cried out. Before, for, for they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. <laughs> so in the middle of your trial and your storm, his words of encouragement are always, be cool, be of good cheer. I've got it covered. It's I. Don't be afraid. And then he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marvel. Whoa. So I want to talk for a few minutes to all the followers of Jesus that there's something you need to do if you have need of God's help, something you need to do. Have you noticed that commercial? Of course, it hasn't been on now for several years, but for a while they were bringing it back around this season of the year because all the infomercials are out. And you've seen a lot of them, all hours of the day and night. And they're selling you this new laser deal. And they're selling you stuff to put on the legs of your furniture. And, and by the way, you know, if you, you, so much for 10 bucks. But if you act right now, we'll send you a second set for free. Just pay 
shipping and handling, which is more than the cost of the actual product when you add that to it. But they don't tell you that until after you see the bill. Uh, but nonetheless, do you remember that one infomercial? There was kind of this elderly gal, and she was in bed, and uh, she forgot to turn out the lights, and she just... You remember that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Clap on. Clap off. And they sold a ton of those. A little device that you plug stuff into, you plugged it into the wall, and it had a detector that responded to sound, a specific sound wave, the sound of a clap. And that switch would trigger off or on when you clapped around it. And now you can go into some washrooms and there's you know, germ-conscious society we live in, and we're not having to touch all the stuff that's around the sink and on the handles. Now you can just kind of give it a little Jedi action, and <laughs> boom, the water comes on. Even the soap comes out, and, and even the towels come out of the dispenser, right? I mean, there you have it, and you can get your hands clean because there's response to motion, there's response to sound. God has a principle here. God responds to you, when you respond to him, when you're in a storm, okay? When you're in a storm, God will respond to you when you respond to him. The word says it like this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's waiting for some action. He wants to see that it's more than just words, that there's verbal action and physical action because the word faith used properly in scripture is a verb. It means you've got legs on it. It's not just words rolling off your tongue. So he says, you do something, you draw near to me and I will do something. I will draw near to you. You move and then I'll move. That's how God responds to us. You do something, then I'll do something. So the way you, 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 you see stuff happening in the world that's highly techno technological today, there are even sink faucets now where instead of having to go and, and touch with you know, your dirty hands that you've been cooking and fixing stuff, you can just bump it and the water comes on and bump it and the water goes off because you took action. So when the Lord saw, there's an interesting passage in Exodus. Moses is out in the wilderness and out in the desert and very few things grew very well. And when they did, they didn't last very long unless there was rain and it didn't come very often. And when the rainy season was over, everything pretty well dried up in the desert. And he, it was not uncommon for occasionally under this great heat for some dried up bush to spontaneously burst into flames. And this bush caught on fire and he glanced at it, but he also noticed that it continued to burn and was not consumed. So when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, then God called to Moses out of the middle of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, because here's what Moses did to trigger God's response. Moses said, when he looked at that bush, I will now turn aside to see this great sight. When Moses took action spoke it and then acted on it and went and looked at it and focused his attention on it. Then the Lord called to Moses. God began to speak to Moses because God responds to our response. If you do something, God does something. 
Then it says in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your land for good. God will bless you. He wants to favor you. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. But the next verse tells us the qualifier. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, which means I'm all in. I don't do this when it's convenient. I don't do this when I get to it on a Sunday. I do it because it's in me to do all I can for the Lord. Every promise of God has a premise. What's that mean? It will not come into act, activity for you or action for you unless you do the required thing that God's prescribed. So God doesn't just throw out the ring of your life into the ring of your life, all his promises. Say, well, here, they're all yours. Just take what you want. doesn't say, I'm just going to do this for you or, or the attitude that some have. Well, I'm here and the Lord knows I'm sick and the Lord knows I have a problem or the Lord. So if he wants to do this for me, then he's going to do it. Let me explain something to you about God. He's not. He's not going to do it. He'll see you in your need. That's why specifically in his word he says, when you are sick, is any among you sick? Let him what? Call. Why do I have to call? Why can't I just kind of let the word trickle and then everybody will know I'm sick and they'll feel sorry for me and then come and visit me? No. God says, no, no, no. Let him call. Why do I have to do that? Because it causes me to humble myself and tell the Lord, I am dependent on you. I need your help. And I have to have your help. The first step coming toward the Lord is always humility and dependence. Not this independent, uh, you know, he, he knows I'm sick, you'll have to come. No. No, he's not going to heal you until you say something. The woman with the issue, she was not going to stop until she got to him. Jesus says to the blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do? And it's obvious to everybody in the crowd, everybody knows who he is. He's blind. Jesus could have healed him just looking at him. Be healed. No, he didn't do it. He wanted Bartimaeus to say the words that I will receive my sight. I know what I want. This is what I need. And I know you're the one who can do it. So there's something I have to do. He says, so he looks at us. There are steps I have to take. He'll respond when I take those steps. And he's saying, I look at what you do. If you respond toward me, I'll respond back toward you. If you ignore me, and you take this independent, I'll do what I want to do, and if you want to heal me, you can attitude. No. Remember following the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, three intense days now have gone by. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. Unknown to some of his disciples, he's resurrected. There's all of this fear spreading among his disciples. It's a horrible time for them. And two of them are on the road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, as they're walking and talking about what just happened to Jesus, 
and all their hopes and dreams gone. Then Jesus joins them on the road and enters the conversation. And near the end of the day as they're journeying, it says, Jesus indicated that he would have gone further. In other words, he was just going to go on. But they, the two disciples, constrained him and they said, no, stick with us for it's toward evening and the day is far spent. And he goes to stay with them in the house where they're going to stay or the Holiday Inn Express or wherever they're going. And now it came to pass as he sat at table with them that he took bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it. And then he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. If, and then it goes on to say, and all of a sudden they have a revelation, this is the risen Christ, and he's been with us. Had they not constrained him, he'd have kept walking. They would have never had the revelation. But they took action that says, we want you to stay with us. Comprehend this. It's like some people, they get married, they think all their problems are over. And they think, now everything is going to be perfect in my life because now for once, you know, I'm going to be fulfilled and everything in my life is going to be taken care of. You know what you're going to get out of your marriage? Whatever you put in it, okay? If you're just sitting back thinking marriage is going to fix you, <laughs> somebody hollered earlier, I think, when you were talking, right, <laughs> about that same subject. There was one honest person here this morning. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what you're going to get out of a church service? You know what you're going to get out of service? And some people come to church, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, you didn't engage. You didn't follow after the Lord. You never bothered to worship. You don't give anything to God's work. Listen to me. Then you wonder, why am I not getting anything out of church? Because you're not putting anything into it. God responds to you when you respond to him. And he has so wired his kingdom so that you only get out what you put in. And if you put everything in, you're going to get everything out. He rewards that kind of faithfulness. To the person who invested with what God gave him, he doubled and tripled it. To the person who said, no, I'm just going to sit on it, even that he lost. Okay, so you have to compromise. This is the way his kingdom works. His promises for intervention and protection and provision are all premise-based. If you, he'll respond to you when you respond to him. That's why we have such great praise and worship. That's why we work very hard, not only to learn, to to sing properly, to present properly, to be able to execute properly, to blend properly. There's a whole lot more to it than that. Many people don't understand why do we praise the Lord? Why do we put such an emphasis on that? Some people think, well, it's too loud, it's too this, too that, too emotional. Listen to me. Perfect praise, the scripture says. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. You teach from early childhood children how to worship and bless the name of the Lord. Pastor Alex, he's not babysitting your kids on Sunday. He and his wife are over there teaching your children how to worship, how to pray 
how to come to the altar and believe God for answers to prayer. Because the sooner you teach your children how to worship, the sooner they're going to get responses from God. And it's very important for us to realize that when we worship the Lord, when we honor God, when we give him our best out of our heart and worship, God will respond to that. Every once in a while, my wife and I will turn on PBS. They have what they call great performances. And uh, you'll see in those great performances, people are in the stadiums and they're going crazy and they're cheering and they're clapping for somebody who can sing well or play instruments well or dance well and hours of music. And no one's leaving hours of music. And they're still there. They're engaged in what's happening on the platform. We were at a concert with our family last year and it was amazing. And two and a half hours went by and the concert seemed to be over. And the performer decided, well, it's done. There's my last song. And he starts to leave the stage and he's being escorted off the stage and he's disappeared behind the curtain and people are standing and they're cheering and they're clapping and they won't stop. Then finally he comes out from behind the curtain and he comes out and he sings another couple of songs, right? And everybody's cheering and clapping. He turns around and he leaves the stage again. And he goes behind the curtain and people won't stop. They're stomping their feet and they're clapping their hands and they're yelling and cheering. And he comes back out a second time. Now he sings a couple more songs and everybody's just thrilled, okay? And here we come to church. Oh, it's just church, right? No big deal. We're just church. But look at the crowds. Look at this. For what? For some secular music, thank God for it. But how they're responding, how, how they're thrilled, how they're, they're great performance and they, and they enjoy it. And yet there's no eternal significance to much of it. And they say, what an awesome performance that was. It was fantastic. Listen, you serve the God who responds. Listen, to your response to him. That's what praise and worship is about. At these great performances, you know, you pay for a ticket, people clap and they cheer. You may never get to meet that performer, but when you respond to God, you are interacting with the presence of the very God by the Holy Spirit and the fullness of his presence, joy is yours. And so what does that mean? That when we come into the presence of God, the scripture tells us how we should and why we should, and how we come before his presence. Why? Because he's more magnificent than any performer on a stage. Because what he does for us is far more superior than anything anybody can do to entertain me. And what he does, it lasts for eternity. King Jehoshaphat is in the battle of his life. Three great armies have, have come in a triangulation against Israel. They're coming toward Jerusalem from three different directions. And their purpose is we're going to destroy Israel. We're going to wipe it off the map. We don't want this people, the Israelites here, occupying any of this territory. So we're taking them down. So here they come. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, he's facing the battle of his life. And here's his instruction. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Second Chronicles 20 and 20. And then he gives this directive because he remembers what God told him to do. When you have a problem, God said, if you will call on me because you are responding to me and calling with dependence on me, I will respond to you. So Jehoshaphat stands up in the temple of the Lord and he says, God, you said when we have a problem that we are to stand here and we are to call on your name and ask you for help. 
help. We need help, and we need it now. And here's exactly what the Lord told him to do. Then he explained his plan and appointed men to march in front of the army and praised the Lord for his holy power by singing. Israel is surrounded by three kings and their vast armies. They are ready to invade and annihilate Israel. And what does King Jehoshaphat do? He appoints a worship team to lead the army in praise to the Lord. He's got no fighter planes. He hasn't stopped now to call up all the tanks and and all the heavy-duty artillery. He doesn't have any warthogs to go out and take care of business out on the battlefield. That'll fly interference. He doesn't have any special forces except these special forces who bring the angelic hosts to bear. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord and whose praise, who should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army and they said, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So without swordsmen, without chariots, without a military deployment, not what we would think to fight against the three-pronged attack. He said, if you're going into battle, send praise out in front of the battle to praise the Lord because his mercy endures forever. Because we serve a God who responds to us. He responds to us when we respond to him. And the result, now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent traps against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly destroy and kill kill them. So two of the armies gang up on one of the other armies, and they go after each other, and one entire army is wiped out. And then when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. The angels of the Lord came down and so confused these folk and so messed with their heads that they killed off one entire army. Then they turned around and killed off each other. It was like watching one of these uh, World Wrestling Federation events where they have everybody in the ring and everybody's turning on everybody else in the ring. You know what I'm saying? And before it's over, there's only one guy left standing. So they helped destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were nothing but dead bodies. They were just dead bodies. No one had escaped. None. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry. And they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. I mean, they got the latest Popeye's stuff left on the grill. It was all theirs, everything. They pulled their, their jewelry off. These earrings will look good on my wife. I mean, they had everything. In, it took three days to get everything that was left over. And on the fourth day, they assembled, the scripture says, in the valley of Bacharach. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the place was called the Valley of Barak until this day. And then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord made them to rejoice over their enemies. Are any of you in a storm? Do you want to rejoice over the adversaries that are attacking you? Do you want to get safely to the other side like those disciples in my opening scripture? Then here are the secrets to doing it. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was upon all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. Wow. 
So here's what the Lord tells you. Praise God in his sanctuary. Right here, in the gathering of the house of the Lord, praise him in his sanctuary. Lift your hands in his sanctuary. Says that too. Clap your hands, all you people. Praise him with instruments. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because if you want the water of the Holy Spirit to flow, he's waiting on some action to motivate it and activate it. Activate it. Let God see you active, engaged, responding to his presence. So we don't worship the way we worship at Calvary Christian Center so that anybody coming to the service can be impressed. We worship and praise at Calvary Christian Center so we can impress the God we serve, that we love him. And he responds to our response to him. And they began singing, 2 Chronicles 20 and 22, and the Lord confused the enemy camp. You want your enemy to plug his ears in frustration and run away stumbling all over himself? Start praising God even in the midst of threats that are outnumbering you, that appear to overwhelm you. They began to sing, and the Lord confused the enemy camp. So if you want to scatter and confuse the adversary, sing praises to your God. Sing in the middle of your pain. Rejoice in the middle of your difficulty. You'll get to pick up the spoil for three days. And when you're going through a hard season, and the enemy says to you, don't go to church. Stay home and pout. You've got every reason to pout. Or if you go to church, sit there like your neighbor. I'm preaching to him right now. The ward on the pickle next to you. This sits around looking at everybody. Complaining, why is this happening to me? Understand God responds to your response. Do you think? What do you think? How do you think? Which, which of the two people is God going to respond to? The person out of his or her pain who says, in spite of this, it's Paul and Silas having their back split open in a prison at Ephesus. And at midnight, in stocks, blood dripping from their backs, singing praises to the Lord. Or is he going to respond to the person, my life's going wrong. God, where are you when I need you? Which one of the two do you think God's going to respond favorably to? Which one will he have mercy on? Which one is he going to come to with help? Not to the person who's grumbling and complaining, but to the person who says to him, even if you kill me, I'm still going to trust you. When they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into the prison and inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What were they singing? The book of the Psalms. That was the only hymn books they had. Wow. The prisoners were listening to them. And there was a great earthquake, though the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's chains were loosed. What was the result? 
If they'd have sat there and complained to God all night long about how unfair they've been treated and how wrongly and unjustly they've been treated, you think anything would have happened that night? No. Because God responds to our response. God responded. Now, what was the end result? Not only did they get liberated from prison, all the prisoners got liberated from prison. The sheriff and his family, who were keeping them all in prison and probably beat them half to death himself, he and his entire family all were born again. Every single one of them. Okay? So they were the only two worshiping Jesus, but everybody else got loose. If the saints get loose, everybody else gets loose. Amen. So the scripture is very clear to us that when we honor God, when we love the Lord, when we take action, it's like, it's, it reminds me of the prodigal son. The prodigal son decided one time in his life that I, I think I, I've got it together. I can, I can handle life on my own don't need you, Dad, and I don't need the God you serve. So give me what belongs to me, and I'm out of here. And off he went, like so many of us do. And he got himself into a fix, and we always will, because that independent, I don't need any help attitude will always get us in a fix. And he found himself one day running out of not only his inheritance and what he'd taken from home, he found himself slopping pigs and feeding them husks. And it got so hungry in his own life that that was about all the food he'd get his fingers into. And one day he came to himself and said, what are you doing here? My father's got servants working for him that are doing better than I am. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to get up and go home. And I'm going to say to my dad, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. What I've done makes me unworthy to even be a member of your household anymore. But if you'll just let me be a servant, if you'll just let me come and work, he said, I'd be eternally grateful just to be able to be a servant in your house. Well, now notice this. The father was out there looking for his kid every day. But he never left his estate to go find him in the far country. He waited for the boy to learn what he needed to learn. You know why? Pain is a great teacher. Because most of us won't learn the easy way. We all want to try it our own way. And we won't go down the hard road until the pain gets so intense then we decide, you know what? I... <laughs> I figured this out, okay? And the, and the father's waiting on his property, and he's looking in the distance, just like Jesus did from the shore when he saw his disciples in the struggle. And that father sees his boy afar off, probably so afar off that natural eyes couldn't even make him out. But in the spirit, he saw, that's my son. And as soon as he saw his son, the father ran toward him, that's what get God's response because the boy responded, the father responded. See how that works? And when that boy came home, he made him not a hired servant. He restored him to being his son. Isn't it great that when we come toward the Lord in response, 
that God's response to us is to give us full inheritance as one of his sons or daughters, that he receives us back. Isn't that amazing? Because there was a severe famine in the land, a great way off. He came to himself. He arose. He turned toward his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And it secured the transaction because the promise and premise came together and there was total restoration. So what happened? Jesus goes walking out on the Sea of Galilee. He's close to them. He sees that they have a problem. He's in recognition that they are desperate and in fear, but would have passed them by. Except they cried, and he stopped. And he responded to their response. So no matter where you are and storm you're in, no matter what trouble you're in, set off a motion sensor with God today. Do something that lets God know, hey, I need help. And the minute you ask God for help, he sees you've humbled your heart. And that's what God responds to, a humble heart. Not to a haughty heart, a humble heart that says, God, I'm not going to blame anybody. I need help. It's me. God loves that in you. Loves that. That's what he's looking for. So let's stand. Let's thank the Lord today. Come on. Let's give God some response right now.